Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. I much prefer Gremlins. Yeah. I really like Ghostbusters. It's alright. I just can't believe Ghostbusters 2 terrified me as much as it did. Yeah, well, if you were a freak. Yeah. God, should, that, we, should, we, should we do a show? The only thing terrifying about that film is how bad it is. Yeah. It scared you as a kid. Yes. Well, the, the the nightmares I had. Apparently, you are afraid of a ghost. I know, yeah. <laughs> the nightmares I had as a child. No, you know, I was scared of anything. Dip, 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 daddy. Yeah. God, I had terrified nightmares as a kid. You know why? Why? Minimum, you used to sneak in at night and, and play scary music at you. You? While you're in sleep. You know, instead of a mobile, right. you yours played the theme from The Exorcist. I'm not sure whether I'm believing <laughs> or not. I had some messed up dreams, man. Don't mess me around. You know, the baby monitor. We'd only turn it on when we were watching a horror movie. <laughs> oh, you'd switch them One, on, so. two, Freddy's coming for you. So instead of instead of you listening to me, you swap them around so that I could hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Is it any wonder you turned out the way you did? It's pretty believable. I'm not sure what to think of that. Should we do an email? Oh, hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. <laughs> We did it again, we just started. Yeah. Without actually saying, ah, oh, yeah. How much that conversation's going to go in? Oh, I have no idea how much that conversation's going to go in. Um, yeah, you think we'd only been doing this for a very short amount of time instead of, you know, four and a half years. I know, yeah. Well, it's because we forget about it, so... It's, it's just a tape and a conversation, isn't it? It's just like a dog's like life. We forget that we're actually on mic, Every as week I believe it's called, Ooh, by professionals. Right and then we forget. And then we forget again that, exactly. we, that we sit down and actually do this professionally yeah. with our mixing desk and our pop filters and big pop microphones. And, or alternatively, a chintzy little digital recorder. Sadly, on the, the DiManzo payroll, <laughs> we can afford this. Yeah, all we can afford is that. Uh, Mike Bailey's emailed in, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Always nice to hear from Mikey Mike B. JL Avengers Part 1. Oh, it's early and a witty email subject line escapes me at the moment. Well, that'll do. Yeah. Won't it? It's funny oh, enough. That'll, that'll it do the job. Quota. It That'll meet the job. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence? Batman. Ah. And then he does Prince, but I'm not singing Prince. Oh, okay. And mainly because I, I can't sing Prince. I don't know any Prince songs. Purple Rain? I know of Purple Rain. I don't actually know it. Yeah. I don't like Prince. I never liked Prince. <laughs> He's like the Joker, only tiny little Joker. Little tiny Joker, man. Please, please, please don't do that to the tiny little musician. <laughs> Why? Will, will it hurt me? No, it's just crass. Now watch that episode of Buffett. No. The Halloween one where they're all scared of the big monster. It turns out it's a wee little Buffett bloke. Actual size. You remember that one? Kind of. That's a great one. That's the 
That's the second Halloween one they did, not the right. first Halloween one. Okay. It's good. Funny. Okay. I've ruined the end. Yeah. For people. But, you know, watch it anyway. Anyway, should we... Should we I think we should carry on. Should yeah. we write this ship? Are we not going to read the Prince words? All right. All hail the new kings in town. Young and old gather round. Black and white and red and green. The funkiest podcast you've ever seen. I like that you changed it for us. Ah. Is that why you think we should have read it? Could be. Because I would have just gone Prince. Hmm. That would be pretty funky. Well, I, I think we'll, pr- we'll begin with F. Disco Groove. We're the Groovy Funkers. Dis- yeah, Smoothie McGroovy. Jules Holland going through for that, didn't he? What did? For saying the Groovy is at 6 o'clock at night. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> he should have said the Groovy fellas, and he, he made a, a slip right. of the tongue. And he got a slap on the wrist. It was in the tube. Right, okay. Not in the tube, as in the train, yeah, yeah, so yeah, in the, yeah. the television show of the tube, which you probably don't know. Fair enough. Well, you were aware of it, hadn't you? Because, yeah. you know, you're cultured. Only Jules. Only Jules Holland. They got away with that, because well, he's yeah. Jules Holland. Anyway, to a man that isn't Jules Holland, but he's just as cool in his own way. Michael Bailey, should we continue to read his I email? think we should, yeah. I think we should also. In other words, hello, Leylands. Mikey Mike B here with another email show to pass a few minutes of time. It might not be the Stephen King-sized novel, as I tend to write emails that are more the stand than the body, but I wanted to write in with my thoughts of your first part of JLA Avengers, or Avengers JLA, if you want to be pedantic about it. In case you were wondering, I'm writing at work. So once again, you are getting an email on company time. That makes you happy, doesn't it? It kind of That does. makes you feel warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? Yeah, unless he doesn't get paid for the time spent emailing. Of course he does. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's getting paid to email us. That's that's great. That's genius. I want to get paid. I, for, I would listen to more podcasts if I got paid for. You'd probably emails. listen to our podcast if you got paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't hosted by Scroobius Pip. I've not listened to him for a while actually. Just last week you were talking about Scroobius Pip. And I've not listened to him since last week. Okay. All right. Fair enough. To say I was excited about your coverage of something is an understatement. But then again, I tend to be excited by a new episode of Hey Kids. Comics. That's sweet. Mm-hmm. We get quite excited about it. We do, yeah. Well, I kind of do. you just like, oh yeah, there's a new one come out. Which one's been released this week? Do you have any idea? I lose track. Which one came out today? Which <laughs> Don't do this. You've got no idea, have you? Oh, no. You've got no it idea. It wasn't Batman Just Dread. It was not Batman Just Dread, no. So it's not Batman I will let you think about that while I carry on reading the email. All it's right. not Robin. I loved no, because that's not been released yet. I loved this series when it came out, and even though I haven't read it in years, I still love it to this day. I even reviewed the book for the Superman homepage when it came out, but I don't recommend you check it out, as back then I thought I was getting paid by the letter, and they're rather long-winded. In many ways, this would be the last bit of fun both Marvel and DC would have before embarking upon their own respective renovations of both universes. It's hard to think that this book could come out today, much less five to ten years ago, with how old school it is. Sure, the stakes are high and the fates of two universes are on the line, but there are no dark elements, no suggestions that during past adventures any of the significant others of either the JLA or the Avengers had been violated by an old enemy. Oh yeah, it was JLA Avengers. Yay! Well done. (laughs) Part two. Oh, was it? This email's about part one. Oh, right. Yeah, so you were close. (laughs) I'll give you that. Anyway, Mike's email continues. No busting up of the status quo because breaking the toys is the only way you can think to tell dynamic stories. To be fair, this was an intercompany crossover and would have no lasting impact on either universe, but still... I don't see DC or Marvel putting something like this out in the current climate of comic book storytelling. What, Mike? By that, do you mean something good? Oh, Oh, it is funny because it is pithy! (laughs) I don't actually agree with that statement. I was just being pithy, wasn't it? A lot of good comics being published at the minute. Mm-hmm. I agreed with nearly everything you both said. 
Only Neely. Yeah, no, it's not good enough. It's not. And I have only two things to add. First, this story would have a sequel of sorts in the JLA, which by this point had turned into a title where different creators would come in for six issues or so, then have one writer, then rather than have, sorry, one writer chart the course of the team, otherwise known as writing trade paperbacks instead of comics. This story, which is in the trade paperback Syndicate Rules, was an eight-issue tale written by Kurt Busiek and drawn by Ron Garner, and featured many plot elements from JLA Avengers, or Avengers JLA if DC being first bugs you. It also featured the Crime Syndicate, as the title hints at, and it was a fun romp. The main thing I took away from it was that Busiek removed the silly idea that the JLA and the Crime Syndicate couldn't fight because they couldn't touch, which bugged the crap out of me from Morrison's JLA Earth 2 story. Also, they replaced the white power ring with an African-American version to keep in line with Jon Stewart being part of the JLA at the time because of the Justice League animated series. It's a fun story, and like the JLA Avengers, or Avengers JLA, if you just have to be picky about it, it's one last old-school superhero story before DC really dived into Infinite Crisis. I really like the whole not being able to touch thing. Do you? Yeah. Of course you did. It was in a Grant Morrison story. No, it's... I like the whole matter versus anti-matter thing. I don't even remember it. It makes the story more complicated. You've got to be kind of creative to think of ways around it. Alright. I'll take your word for it, because I I can't even remember us two. Fair enough. At this point. I think it's when I first thought, Chris, Frank Whitley's a bit crap. And now he's voted number two on the top comic book artists of all time. And I am left doing this... Earth 2's not his strongest. No, it's not. He's really good at the moment. He's, he's adequate at the moment. Mm-hmm. He's, his artwork has improved to the point where I now think it's adequate. You read, read Multiverse. I am going to read Multiverse. I'm waiting till it's all out. Right, okay, okay. You keep nagging me to read Multiverse, and I will it's read Multiverse. It? Well, is there any point in reading it? You're going to make me do it on the show. I know, yeah. So I may as well wait. I also quite like how, how Michael has to add, add a... A, a slight a pithy comment yeah a pithy comment at the end of every JLA Avengers I, I only or Avengers pre- JLA I only prefer JL Avengers simply because Avengers doesn't work there is that because I, yeah. I, I like your JL Avengers the Justice League Avengers I like that I think yeah. it's a great title but you know everyone has to be keep tapping and everyone's ego has to be pleased so each issue was the other way around wasn't it one yeah. was JLA Avengers and then the next one Avengers JLA but I prefer JL Avengers mm-hmm that's my preferred <laughs> option. He didn't mention that one yeah. in his email, so obviously I'm in a class of my own. That's me, stood over in the class, me in the corner. In the all spotlight. Of my own. That's me in the spotlight, yeah. Losing my religion, because no one else pays any attention to me. I'm just stood there, facing the wall, just swaying side to side. Ice cream all around my mouth, twitching, saying, Mother, they're, they're making me do it again, Mother. Anyway, uh, the email continues. The second thing I wanted to bring up was an offhand comment Andy made towards the end of the episode. They always get me in trouble then, don't they? <laughs> Them offhand comments. Them that old script. You're the Jeremy Clarkson of podcasting. <laughs> I am the Jeremy Clarkson of podcasting. Yeah. I don't mean to be offensive. <laughs> it just comes naturally to me. I just hate them all. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Dirty Harry. Yeah, I yeah, hate yeah. everybody equally. He seems to suggest, that would be me, because yes, we're back yes. in the email now, that all of the problems DC had after Crisis of Infinite Earths was the fault of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Well, not all of them, Mike. Just 99% of them. <laughs> Actually, I also had issues with his opinions on the Speed Force, but not enough to mention beyond this sentence, because that is a matter of taste, which is harder to argue. I think we've mentioned that I'm not a big fan of the Speed Force before. When we did. When we uh, did Flash and Allen, yeah. Return of Barry Allen, yeah. So, maybe that's why he didn't want to mention it. Maybe he's mentioned it before, and I just Could don't be. remember. I just think it overcomplicates it, but that's just me. There are some people who love the Speed Force. Mm-hmm. That is the point. 
Fair enough. Personally, but that's just me. Now, maybe I am being sensitive because Scott Gardner and I have just started work on our epic Crisis podcast, which, by the time this gets read, will be available under the Tales of the JSA feed over on the Two True Freaks site. Plug. Well done. <laughs> but there seems to be this feeling out there that all of the continuity problems DC after Crisis were, as I wrote before, Crisis's fault. Now, you could argue that none of the problems would have happened if Crisis hadn't happened, but given the level of continuity and consistencies before Crisis, I would say that any later problems would have been inevitable. Different, but inevitable. More to the point, just because Crisis reorganised things doesn't mean that it caused problems down the line. The creators and editors that came after Crisis are to blame for the problems. Some of them didn't want to play ball and went off in their own direction, which can hardly be laid at the feet of Crisis. So to put it another way, if I renovated a house and then rented it out and some tenants down the line trashed that place... That's not my fault. I gave them a perfectly good house to live in, and they were the ones that ruined it. So yes, Man of Steel and Hawkworld and everything else that came after Crisis did cause problems. But that isn't Crisis's fault as a story. Discuss! Don't know. Excellent, good. (laughs) Kind of right. You see, I I read this last week, or whenever it was sent, in relation to us recording this, and I'm kind of like, I kind of agree with him, because it's not fair to blame Star Wars for Michael Bay's Transformers. Yeah. You can't blame Star Wars for the fact that a lot of summer blockbusters are utter shit, can you? But you can blame Star Wars for being influential. That's, but that's not George Lucas's fault. No, So it's you can't not. blame Star Wars for that. Let us discuss Michael's opinion then that we cannot blame Crisis for the problems of the DC Universe post-Crisis. Now, on the one hand, he's right, mm-hmm. which I know he will love hearing. Crisis on Infinite Earth, in and of itself, did not cause those problems. Crisis mm-hmm. on Infinite Earths wiped the slate clean for DC to be able to do what they wanted. But there was any number of people, Mark Wade, Jeff Loeb, just two that spring to mind, who did not want to get rid of the multiverse, yeah. and so they subverted it at every opportunity mm-hmm. in their own works. Is that the fault of Crisis? Now, Michael is saying no. My personal thinking is Crisis on Infinite Earths is excellent. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoy Crisis on Infinite Earths. I ultimately believe, though, that as a result of Crisis, DC ended up in a bigger mess. Not initially. Following Crisis in 86 through, I don't know, about 95-ish, DC was pretty consistent and pretty good. Yeah. But then people came along and wanted to bring back stuff from prior to Crisis. So, because comics continuity doesn't happen in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to accept that Crisis bears some of the responsibility for that. Yeah. Whereas some of blockbuster movies do happen in a vacuum. Crisis isn't at fault of doing that, but it is Crisis's fault for that happening. Yeah. And ultimately... You can't do something like that in comics because those people that are in charge at that time will not be in charge of that forever. Yeah. As we saw with Dan DiDio, who came in all bluster and said, right, I want Barry Allen back as The Flash, and I'm not interested in doing anything innovative like Vertigo anymore, and I want Hal Jordan back as Green Lantern because I want to make films about all these characters. Which isn't particularly creative. It's not, and it's not worked out well so far. Well, The Flash TV show's great. Okay. And Arrow's better now it's in its third season. First two are a bit of a slog. Right. But the third season's pretty good. Because Brandon Ralph, who knew? Who knew that he was so good? Fair enough. From Superman Returns. I mean, yeah. it was good in Chuck, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, back to Michael's point. I, I kind of agree with him. 
it's not Crisis's fault. But uh, the other side of that is comics continuity does not exist in a vacuum. So Crisis does have to bear some of the brunt of the responsibility. Yeah. In my opinion. Don't make Crisis any less good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, should we wrap up the email? Okay. Anyway, amazing grob. A grob? I don't know what a grob is. Do you know what a grob is? Uh, I don't know. Amazing job, as usual. Looking forward to the second part. Because while the first two parts are amazing, the final two, especially issue three, are even better. Take care, Mikey Mike B. I always like it when Mikey emails in with an email that provokes discussion. Mm-hmm. And Tales of the JSA, the first episode of the Crisis on Infinite Earths, is about 400 hours long. And I listened to it today. And it was very good. All 400? I listened to all 400 hours, yeah. Okay. I listened to it on double speed. Right, I want. <laughs> You, you go on no, two, I don't. Two, uh, I don't do that. Two times faster, yeah. I, I listen on two times faster. Yes. Right, okay. So I can listen to more podcasts than a day and oh, make okay. everyone say, I can't sound like this. That's what I do. Crisis Tales. Woo! <laughs> Everyone is the calling DuckTales. Woo! Next email is JL Avengers Love Fest. Which sounds a little bit, you know. It, it doesn't. Sounds like it's a bad headline on a bad newspaper. God, Diana! <laughs> Come sit your comely buttocks upon my knee. My hammer, don't well, seek I your press hammer. upon you, my hammer! <laughs> that kind of love fest. Oh, you know, those two women that listen to the show, hi, Katie, and uh, whoever else it was. Rihanna. Uh, they've just left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We were kidding, because the next scene is obviously Diana thumping him with his own hammer. Oh, with the whip. Oh, but no, he didn't. Let's just move on. Let's just retrack it. Still... Hello, Leylands. Hello, Christopher. You guys were practically gushy. But who can blame you? It wasn't gushy in Quantum Leap. <laughs> this crossover pushed all those childlike buttons, didn't it? I really can't add much other than it was excellent. Superhero comics at its finest. And that's it from Christopher. Said, oh, no. I can add a little. One of my favourite aspects of the series was all of the various alternative versions of the characters winking in and out of the story. The costumes, the bad her choices, the replacements, it was indeed a geek-gasm. I also enjoy that in Crisis, Zero Hour, and in something that came after this, the JL episode, Once and Future Thing. Oh yeah, it is Once and Future Thing. I thought that was wrong. I thought Once and Future King, surely. But no, it is Once and Future Thing. Seeing Jon Stewart turn into Hal Jordan was a real treat, and I think they may have got that bit from this comic. The Kang Lord of Time story was a nod to the story of the original unpublished JLA Avengers. The splash is Perez redrawing that original cover. Somewhere around here I have a copy of David Anthony Kraft's comics interview Spotlight, the aborted crossover. It uses that cover image as its own cover and has tons of Perez's pencil art. It is a beauty to behold, but Perez was a stronger artist by the time the real deal finally made it out. I really need to go and dig out that magazine. Thanks. Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm Michael. We do appreciate that. The other emails that came in were not for Hakey's Comics. <laughs> Which annoyed Michael considerably. Because <laughs> he looked at it and goes, oh, emails. And then I'm like, oh, not so much. They're encouraging you. They are. They're encouraging me to be solo and do solo podcasts without you. Yeah. Which you don't like, do you? No. You don't like it. We're the Beatles just waiting to happen. <laughs> He's going to quit first. Yeah. <laughs> Is it going to be like uh, Rob Liffield announcing that he's quit five minutes before they fired him? Yeah. Is that what it's going to be like? How? Beat the bastards to it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, um, we're going to plug the Tales of JSA that you just heard about on this ear show, because they've made a trailer for it, so I'll I'll play it, because, you know... There is one. Because there is one, yeah. I mean, I couldn't play it if there wasn't one. There is one. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? You could pretend to. I could pretend. And now imagine, really hard you're listening to it. Yeah, now just imagine that you're listening to a trailer. 
Pretend. Doesn't matter which one it is. Yeah, we'll we'll be we'll we'll be we'll be back with something after you've pretended to listen to a trailer. <laughs> Two True Freaks presents the <laughs> Nutella podcast. <laughs> the, do, do you know we talk about food so much that would not surprise me if that became a thing. Yeah. The Nutella podcast. <laughs> I want to get in on that. <laughs> Nutella's awful. Three comp copies of Nutella, I yeah. I hate Nutella. Anyway, we'll be back after this advert for the Nutella podcast. <laughs> Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Ariel. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. With the decision made in the late 1960s to return the Batman to his 1930s origins as the Dark Knight detective, there was suddenly no room in the grim Avengers life for a brightly coloured wisecracking sidekick, and Dick Grayson was duly dispatched off to college. He spent most of the 1970s bouncing around between Teen Titans adventures, appearing in his own adventures in backup strips in Detective Comics or Batman Family, or popping up in Batman's adventures from time to time. Certainly my recollection of Batman comics growing up are that Robin was a sporadic presence. He'd drop by, say hi, stick around for a story or two, and then gone again. As such, for me, Robin was never Batman's permanent partner, with the exception of the 60s TV show. For me, Batman hung out with Superman and the Justice League more than he hung out with Robin. The Teen Wonder still had presence, though. He regularly headlined the aforementioned Batman family alongside Batgirl, and Detective Comics went through a phase where it would boast the title of Batman and Robin rather than the actual title of the book. However, he was kind of struggling on his own. He was the back end of Batman and, rather than being a character in his own right. And this identity crisis was applied back onto the character as he started to wonder who Dick Grayson was and where he belonged. If any title can be said to give Dick Grayson his own identity and redefine him in his own man, it would be the New Teen Titans. Launched in DC Comics Presents issue 26 in October of 1980, this slight backup tale introduced us to a new team. Gone were Speedy and Aqualad, and in their place new characters, Raven, an empath, Starfire, an alien princess from the planet Tamara, and Cyborg, a cyborg. They joined Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, the newly renamed Beast Boy, now going by Changeling, and of course, Robin the Teen Wonder. 
Over the course of the series, we saw Robin and Dick Grayson, now established as being 19 years of age, becoming the leader of the team and starting to make his way as his own man. The new Teen Titans rapidly became DC's best-selling book, rivaling the sales of Marvel's best titles and cleaning up at fan awards. A lot of this was down to Marv Wolfman's character-led stories ably plotted in conjunction with artist George Perez to create arguably DC's first Marvel comic book. Whilst the stakes were high with villains like Trigon, space opera adventures with Starfire's sister Blackfire and more ground-level crime dramas dealing with drug abuse, it was the characters that sold the book and kept readers coming back for more. All of them were fleshed out, all of them became living, breathing people with hopes and fears, and this all culminated with one of the best issues, the biggest single event in young Dick Grayson's life since the deaths of John and Murray. The story goes that Marv Wolfman was getting a little bit fed up with not being able to do anything with Dick Grayson and Robin without consulting with the Bat offices, Robin still being thought of as a Bat family character. Wolfman wanted to do things with Robin that he was being held back from. At the same time, the Bat office was toying with the idea of reintroducing Robin back into Batman as a regular character. Faced with possibly losing a character he'd spent a long time developing, and feeling that this would be a retrograde step for the teen wonder, Wolfen suggested making somebody else Robin, and having Dick become a new character. The Bat Office gets their character back, he gets to write Dick Grayson as he sees fit. Win, win. Nowadays, where there seems to have been a different Robin every other decade, this isn't quite as groundbreaking as it was back then. But at the time, this was that seismic shift in the, say it with me, status quo that has, by and large, stuck. The animated series had Dick give up being Robin and become Nightwing. The New 52 has Dick giving up being Robin and becoming Nightwing. Even the movies kind of acknowledge this change. The resignation happened in the New Teen Titans issue 39, cover dated February 1984. The cover is all white, and it's all right as well, and has Dick Grayson and Wally West, their costumes strewn over the logo, walking away, as this was the issue Dick quit being Robin and Wally quit being Kid Flash. Cover Mike. Uh, I really like it. It is deceptively pleasing in its simplicity. And you know what I like as well? What? Robin's costume is hanging from the logo whilst mm. flashes are scattered about across the floor. Well, Robin's is falling off the logo as well. But it's an elevated costume which kind of plays into the story a bit. Why? Well, the bit at the end where no one seems to... Well, I, I, I no don't... one seems to give a toss yeah. that while he's leaving. But, but it... everyone's oh no, don't go yeah. Dick! So the fact that it's Robin's costume that's hanging from the logo making it just as important as the title or as Flashes is already on the floor. No, no, it's just a valid point. Yeah. Artistic buy. Yeah, very good, very good, very nice. Crossroads was written and drawn by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. The Titans have tracked a brother blood sanctuary to Alaska and move in to take it down. Inside, they find evidence linking a number of politicians to blood pseudo-religious cult, evidence they pass over to the authorities. All of this is recorded via Tara Markov, a.k.a. Terror's contact lenses, and relayed to the home of Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke, the Terminator, a.k.a. Crixus from Spartacus. His plans to use Tara to destroy the Titans are slowly coming together. 
And he loves it when a plan comes together. Not only that, but a workout session reveals that young Tara Markov may be far more powerful than even Slade suspected. That night, at the monthly Titans meeting, Wally West, who has long since started to lose his powers, decides to quit being Kid Flash and leave the team. Tara is finally inducted into the Titans properly, however, there is bigger news to come. Dick Grayson has decided to quit being Robin. A new identity will come, and soon, but for now, Dick needs to think about who he is and what he wants. Back at Slade's HQ, the Deathstroke man watches dispassionately, his finely laid plans finally coming to fruition. And I'm actually quite impressed by the brevity of that synopsis. Yeah. Quite to be honest with you. Aren't you? Mm, I don't know. There's really not much to this issue, is there? The, the first half is a big fight. And yeah. given that the whole point of this two-parter that we're looking at is to concentrate on Dick Grayson, I didn't really feel like describing it. And then they fought a bit. And yeah. then they fought some more. Especially so. when there's the bit between Terror and Deathstroke as well, which... Yeah. Most of this issue is Fighty McFighter. Yeah. Which is good. It's good fighting and fighting. But the real meat of it is the end. Is the last six pages, yeah. yeah. It's, that's absolutely right. Uh, showing his mastery of the form. And it really is odd that we've not covered George Perez on the show much at all. Yeah. And then, like a bus, two, a Perez, two Perez shows come along roughly at the same time. Yeah. Which uh, is never a bad thing. I think George Perez is brilliant. Uh, Perez issues an inker for this issue. So it's all Perez all of the time. But he goes from laying out a wonderfully cramped, but not in a bad way, mm. opening page, a tense little build-up scene with a, a ton of panels on it. How many panels are on that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirteen panels yeah. on page one. Absolutely brilliant panels. And you open it up to go on the next page, and it's a glorious double-page spread of the Teen Titans strutting their stuff. That's poster-worthy. Mm. Dick Grayson's got pretty muscular legs. He you has, see, yeah. see why he wore short pants? <laughs> see why the girls went for him, can't you? When he's got uh, thighs like that. Uh-huh. What do you think about a double post splash? Yeah, it's good. I mean, I'm not sure where Terra's busted out of since it's a metal fortress. Uh, well, presumably it's built in the ground. It is in underground, isn't yes, it? Yes, but so can you just headbutt well, metal? If she's pushing on it with enough force, and as you learn later on in the issue, right. Sled Wilson does actually say yeah. she is far more powerful than I ever thought she could be, hmm. given that she's only 16 at this point. Yeah. So what's she going to be like when she's an adult? Good double play splash. Absolutely brilliant. Poster worthy. Making a poster DC. Oh, this doesn't exist anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. In continuity anymore. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Raven senses the, the men that they are fighting over this quite epic, what is it, 13, 10... Ten page fight scene? Yeah. It is pretty much. Yeah, it's nine pages. Nine page fight scene, not ten pages. Raven senses the evil of the men that they are fighting. But she cannot actually feel, help but feel, sorry, there's an evil closer to them. Mm. This was a running subplot of Tara Markov, aka Terra, being a mole and actually working for Deathstroke, as would be revealed in the Judas contract, which we've already covered. Yes. And if we were any kind of professional, we would have looked at what episode number that was. Yes. But we didn't. So it's in the archive on 2TrueFreaks.com. Go and look it up. To be honest, this isn't a mystery to the reader. We knew Tara was evil from the get-go. And they did have to kind of play fast and loose with the fact that Raven couldn't tell she was evil. Yeah. And the actual had moments where she did... And she was kind of, I can't be right. Because she was going through a whole phase of my powers aren't working properly. Right. So that was, that kind of glossed over that they have an empath on the team. 
Well, it, to me, it, it kind of ruins it that you know she's a mole. Why? Because that's the point of the story. I guess. The point of the story is we know from the very beginning. Yeah. But the Titans don't. And what Wolfen and Perez played with was they thought they were playing with the idea that we as the reader thought she would switch sides. Right. They were telling it that way around. Yeah. They thought Tara would become good because of being associated with the Teen Titans and be redeemed, which is yeah. the standard way these stories would go, isn't it? Yeah. But they didn't want that. They wanted us to think that. And the only way you can play that story is if we know from the beginning yeah. that she's the bad guy. I guess. But to me, it kind of... I don't know. Maybe having it be a reveal would have been... Well, we got that reveal. I guess. We got that reveal at the end of the, of the first issue, though. Right, okay. So, you... so we did... For the first issue, we think she's a good girl. Yeah. And she wants to be a part of the team. And on the very last page, we get hit with the, oh, she's a bad guy. I think it just would have been a bit more bigger and more bold if you'd follow her good and then switch bad. No, see, because I was reading this as it came out. I was following the Teen Titans as it was being released. Yeah. And the, for me, the, the exciting thing about this storyline was us reading it knowing she was a bad guy. Because right. all the while we were going, how can you not see this? I mean, especially when in this issue she relishes smashing up the bad guys. Yeah. And she actually says, good or bad, I don't care. Yeah. I just want to smash something. The Titans should really have picked up on something like that. I guess. Shouldn't they? But they just kind of gloss over it, don't they? Yeah. And it, it does show the, the naivete. Yes. In, in some ways, well, I suppose. I, I watched the, when they did the Teen Titans cartoon and that played it as a... Her being good. I can't believe they bad. did this storyline on the kids' cartoon. Yeah. Did they play it fairly faithfully? I think the way they did it was she was good. Right. And then Darkseid, Deathstroke, corrupted her. Right. See, in the comics, she was just pure evil from the get-go. Yeah. The story that they want to tell is that some people are just scum. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where you... It's nature versus nurture. Yeah. Some people are just scum, according to Wolf and the Press. Well, the cartoon was Corruption of Innocence. Right, so the cartoon essentially told a different version of the story. Yeah. Because it's a cartoon for kids. Yes. Yeah. Right, it still got pretty dark in places. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it did. That's, I, didn't, I never watched any of that, but that's fair enough. They yeah. just changed it. It still ended the same way, I presume. She still died. I can't remember. In the kids' cartoon. I can't remember. <laughs> Probably not, is what I'm saying. The colouring is by the wonderfully underrated Adrian Roy. And uh, the energy grid scenes, because it's the fight scene, we kind of skipped over in the synopsis because it's lots of fighting, it's cool fighting, but it's fighting. And the Teen Titans get caught in this big energy grid and they all have to work together to, to undo it. And the way it's done is Perez does his art in red ink rather than usual black, so it's all on the colourist, isn't it? Mm. To show that this is electrified. And it's great. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. I don't know a lot of work in black and white, but I don't think they've ever done showcase volumes for the Teen Titans, so ultimately it doesn't really matter. Even more effective than the colouring is the change in reader perspective. Suddenly, as of page nine, we're watching this story unfold through Tara's eyes, which are the contact lenses that she wears to record everything. And we cut to like black and white TV style images, similar to what Frank Miller would be declared a pioneer for doing a couple of years from now when he did Dark Knight Returns, but Perez did it first. Yeah. I did like that our contact lenses don't record sound. 
Yeah. Oh, that was a really nice touch. And she's talking over it. And she's giving, you know, running commentary. Before there were DVD commentary. Yeah. She's doing a commentary on what Slade is watching. I thought that was impressive. Because that is showing some good attention to detail, isn't it? How would the contact lenses yeah. record audio? So I quite I like... That's a, an element of verisimilitude that I yeah. really found quite effective. I like the, um, the Deathstroke smoke coming over the yeah, screen Yeah, as, as well. you're watching them, you just some Deathstroke smoke wafts over the it's screen. It's kind of like panning out. Oh, it's not Deathstroke, it's her. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's Tara that's smoking, not Deathstroke. It's kind of like panning out, but without it moving. Mm, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. It's a really impressive way of telling the story. Tara was a, a fascinating character. She's clearly just evil. Marv Wolfen never wrote her anyway, and that was what was fascinating about her, as we, we've just been discussing. We are fascinated with the idea of redemption and second chances for people. Mm. But some people don't deserve second chances, which we were talking about earlier on with your yeah. mum, weren't we? We were having a discussion about capital punishment as a family. We were. <laughs> These are the kind of light-hearted <laughs> topics that we discuss over the dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, some people are just scum. And Tara is one such person. She's barely a child herself. She's only 16 years of age here. Yeah. Which gives a whole different feel to the story, doesn't it, once you know that? I, I, I found this entire scene to be icky. Did you? Cause yeah. She's, yeah, because she's obviously in a sexual relationship with Slade Wilson. Yeah. Isn't she? And just looking at her... She she looks like someone who's just been in clothes for the first time. And yes. She's, she's a little girl dressing up in mummy's clothes. Yeah. Isn't she? She thinks... She's sophisticated and also dangerous. But Slade's just using her. He's using her for his own means. And during the training session, a couple of pages on, it's actually quite satisfying, in a macabre kind of way, to watch Slade get his head handed to him, because he's cocky. Yeah. And it's really interesting that he covers it up really yeah. well, which I thought was really clever of me. He doesn't let her know. Mm. that he's shocked and surprised by how effective and powerful she's become. But yeah, that's exactly what she is. She's a little girl who thinks she's grown up and she's being manipulated by this older man because she's too dumb to yeah. know that's what's happening to her. She thinks she's in control mm. when she isn't. And it does add, yeah, I mean, because it, it does add, like you say, a little bit of an icky subtext to it. I mean, in later times, people have pounced on this. Yeah. But... What he's doing is clearly wrong, but she's letting him do it. Yeah. So, you know, it's very morally grey. It's... Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of icky, but done well. Yeah. You don't advocate it. Yeah. But when you're reading it, you're kind of going, that's who Tara is. Because it's never set in stone. You never say, this is what's happening. This is that's, the... I think you can imply that. No, yeah, yeah. But it's heavily implied, but they never say, oh yeah, the, the you know... They're a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, fine. I think they're doing a letter issue. Right, okay. <laughs> Subtlety goes out the window later on. Fair, fair I think well, that's what happened with the with comics, isn't it? Well, we get to the scene where they're all quitting. And uh, Wally really is a bit harsh to Raven. Yeah. Isn't he? He's like, yeah, sometimes I like you, sometimes I hate you. I just need not to be here anymore. And it's all your fault. Yeah. It's basically what he says, isn't it? Sometimes I can't bear to be apart from you. Sometimes I don't care that you even exist. Yeah. I'm like, poor Raven. <laughs> you know, she's so Raven. That just seems a bit mean. Uh, Robin's announcement to leave is the key part of the issue and the reason that we're actually covering the comic. Tara makes it all about her. Starfire makes it all about she and Dick's relationship. 
and everyone else is just stunned. And and Wally's left going, but this was about me. Yeah, uh, there's only Donna who makes it about Dick. Yeah. And asks him, are you sure you were making the right decision? There's only Donna Troy here who is arguably an adult, which yeah. I thought was either a really unintentionally good piece of writing, yeah, or a very good intentional piece of subtle writing that yes he's writing this book about these teenagers who are on the cusp of adulthood but they're not quite there yet yeah and what you're getting from this scene here is Dick Grayson and Donna Troy are the only ones who are proper grown ups Mm. and this is Dick's first step into being a man as opposed to being the boy wonder anymore yeah which uh, what did you think? do you agree with me? do you think it's unintentionally good or do you think he meant it? Uh, uh, I don't know See, you you are thinking that it's the first steps of becoming an adult, but they're still in a title called The Teen Titans. Yeah, see, that was the trouble that they were... They, ultimately, they would go and just rename it The, the Titans. Titans yeah. Tales of the Titans, wasn't it? Didn't it become? Yeah, I think so. So, they ultimately stopped them being teenagers at some point. Because at this point, Gar Logan's only supposed to be 16. I think Starfire's supposed to be the equivalent of 19. And Wally and Dick are 19. I don't know, well, Cyborg looks much older than 19, but that may be all that silver that he's yeah. wearing. Yeah. Maybe let Mr. T. All that jewellery makes him look older. And Raven, you could never tell how old she was because she she always looks about forty anyway. So you know, but yeah, they are in a boot called the Teen Titans. So you know, Dick symbolically removing the Robin costume in addition to being a striptease for Tara. Yeah, is a, a really big symbolic moment for the character, which I thought Tara kind of ruined a little bit. Well, she's sixteen. I guess she's young and stupid. And annoying. Yes, she's 16. I refer you to my earlier statements. <laughs> I never knew that Robin's shorts were a tunic. Yeah, I didn't get that either. That's, I like well, that. Maybe it was introduced for this issue just for that scene. Well, I quite like it. Because it means that he's not just wearing short sleeves. He has actually got something on under it. Yeah. Maybe that's chainmail or something underneath the tunic. Yeah. Which would make some kind of sense, wouldn't it? Captain America wears chainmail. Mm-hmm. If he's up close and fighting with somebody and he's got, like, the sword, the fighting him with a knife or whatever, yeah. he's got some extra protection. Because that costume that he wore, not a lot of protection in that, is there? Yeah. I, I, I do still think it only exists because of this scene. Probably. Because um, in Marshall Rogers' Batman, when he fought and punched and he split the tunic open, it yeah. was just skin underneath, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe he's got different outfits. They have just been in the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're thermals. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd need them, wouldn't he? Yeah. yeah. It would be very cold for him. Um, structurally weird, the big climax actually takes place in the first nine pages, is interrupted by two running subplots the Brother Blood arc and the Tara Markov arc, before turning into a character piece, yet oddly, works magnificently. Wolfman and Perez, at the top of their game, having built these storylines up over a number of years at this point, this was a huge moment, with Tara being let in on the secrets as we, the readers, were screaming, No! She's a sociopath! Don't do it! But this is also a big issue character-wise. Dick Grayson's decision to quit being Robin... He's almost angst-free. Very yeah. unusual for this comic. Although it does have its fur share of melodrama. Yeah. It's a Marv Wolfman comic, yeah. after all. And, you know, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. Oddly, that gets a bigger deal made of it than Wally's decision to quit. Like Which he brings up, yeah. Yeah, Wally just, uh, nobody cared about me. Yeah. Dick decided he was going to quit being Robin. It became all about him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. That's actually quite a valid point. The crisis... 
would play fast and loose with continuity, but at the time this was a pretty big deal in the life of Dick Grayson. What did you think of it, young Michael? I liked the bits that I cared about. Which bits did you care about? Deathstroke's cool. Deathstroke's cool always Deathstroke. cool. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, you've read the Judas Contract with no context. You didn't read this month in, month out, like no, we did. Or like I did. I still had the cartoon to go off. Yeah. It wasn't completely contextless. Yeah. But, yeah, I wasn't reading this, but I still knew of the story. Well, it's quite a famous comic book story at this point. Isn't yeah. It? But, yeah, it was cool seeing Deathstroke. The fight's cool. And, and the ending is... Um, Important. Yeah. But, honestly, my favourite part of it is the, the epilogue, the last page. It's just so quiet. And downbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I mean by the issue being structurally very strange. Yeah. But it, it's a monthly comic. You can mix and match stuff like that every now and again. Yeah. You know, back when they weren't just writing to put things in a trade paperback, they were telling a continuing narrative. This Tara Markov storyline went on for, God, what was it, 30 issues? 25 issues? Yeah. That's quite impressive. That's like two years or yeah, so. Yeah, and it's quite an impressively way laid out storyline. I can't think of putting up with her for that long. <laughs> She's not in every issue. <laughs> you, just want, you just want Slade to kill her, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe you want her to kill a 16-year-old girl. Even a sociopath. That says something about you. <laughs> it's those teeth. Yeah, what's up, Doc? <laughs> of course, Dick went on to adopt the name Nightwing in a story called The Judas Contract that we've already covered. However... Batman the Animated Series was also notable for including Robin, and he was so popular, the second block of episodes produced for the show were called The Adventures of Batman and Robin. Apparently, audience research showed that kids really liked the episodes with Robin in them, and so the series was retooled slightly to accommodate him more often. The Robin of that series had an origin, as shown in the two-part episode Robin's Reckoning, that was remarkably faithful to the one seen in Detective Comics 38, although Robin himself was given a makeover. Gone were the pixie boots, and in were the more practical biker-style boots sported by the Batman himself. The short pants were also discarded, and the cape was made reversible, so it not only be the more traditional yellow, but when stealth was required, it could be turned around and made black. This new Robin also carried a quarterstaff as a weapon. If all this seemed familiar to comics fans, it was because the producer had simply given Dick Grayson the costume sported by the third Robin, Tim Drake. Designed by Neil Adams, this made a certain amount of sense, and if people complained about it at the time, well, I don't remember. When the third block of episodes of the series were planned, Bruce Tim did a complete overhaul of the characters, and Dick was promoted to Nightwing. But how this change occurred was detailed in the comics miniseries Batman The Lost Years. Rather than give this full coverage, as it lasted five issues, we've read it to just do a compare and contrast between how the animated series, which to be fair had the benefit of hindsight, handled Dick's graduation from Robin to Nightwing. The series was written by Hilary J. Bader, with art in the animated style by Bo Hampton and Terry Beater. Five issue synopsis coming up. <laughs> On the eve of his graduation, the Batman and Robin are starting to grow apart. Batman is tiring of Robin questioning every order, and Robin feels Batman's methods have become a tad more brutal, especially when Batman threatens a man in front of his child as their search for the Joker intensifies. Simultaneously, Dick is growing closer to Barbara Gordon, although neither know the other's secret. 
That all changes when she and Bruce Wayne figure each other out, and Robin starts to feel even more put out when Batman and Batgirl start to form their own dynamic duo. The Joker makes his play. He has made a radar signal that prevents any military or commercial plane from flying over Gotham, and announces he wants $40 million. Dick is so annoyed and petulant, he ignores the bat signal, and so Batman takes Batgirl with him as backup. Dick is out trying to find out who he is, but despite this he finds a mugging, which he stops, but he realises that he doesn't want to be like Bruce. Nevertheless, he's still a bit pissed off when he returns to the cave to learn Batman and Batgirl have taken on the Joker without him. Alfred spills the beans, Robin arrives in time to save Batgirl from being killed by the Clown Prince. They stop the Joker, but Robin is annoyed that Barbara is Batgirl and no one bothered to mention it. In anger, he lashes out, punches Bruce, and quits, being the boy wonder. He liquidises his trust fund and leaves to find himself. I normally hate any story that ends with he leaves to find himself. Almost a year later, we find Dick doing his wandering the earth, learning the ways of the samurai thing. After learning the ways of Tai Chi on the Mongolian border and performing as a capoeirista in Brazil, I probably just butchered that pronunciation, Dick heads to Santa de la Rosa for the Festival of the Dead, although he really wants to head up the Ventura River to locate the Invisible Tribe, a mythical people. Whilst there, he uncovers a drug ring run by Two-Face, and after an intensive training session with the Invisible Tribe, he takes Two-Face's gang down, preventing the run of drugs into Gotham. At least for now. Back in Gotham over that same year, young Tim Drake, son of a two-bit hood, Stephen Shifty Drake, has a serious Batman obsession. His dad, however, lives up to his name and betrays Two-Face, forcing him to leave town. Tim makes do as best he can, using a batarang he found as a comfort blanket, but when Two-Face tracks Tim down looking for his old man, the Batman takes an interest. Batman is wounded in the ensuing fight, saving Tim's life, and the Batboat's autopilot takes them both back to the cave, which seemed a bit clumsy to me. Batman and Batgirl track down Two-Face, and Tim, donning Dick's Robin costume, follows and assists. Back at the cave, Batman tells Tim to get some sleep, and to never wear that costume again. At least... Not until he's ready. Back in Tibet, everything ends in Tibet, Dick is tracking the flying monks in an effort to learn how they glide so effortlessly in the air. To get to the monastery, he hires on as a pack carrier for a group of men also looking for the monks. Dick learns they are agents of Ras al Ghul, and he is taken out by their number and left for dead. A flying monk finds and aids him, and Dick, in one of the monk's habits, returns to Gotham to retrieve what Ghul's men stole. Dick returns the item and then returns home. He goes back to the cave and announces he's back, but not as Robin. Call him Nightwing. What do you think of this one? Uh, I enjoyed it. It's good as a whole. Yeah, it's 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 a good five-part adventure that uh, that bridges the gaps between the uh, the animated series and the different looks and and so on and so forth. I've got brief notes on the various different books. Feel free to chime in as and when you wish. Uh, book one has a number of playful elements, lots of Barbara Gordon being utterly adorable, mm. which she was in the animated series. And her being slightly older than Dick means that she's a little bit more mature and can take orders. How she and Bruce figure out each other's identities was fun as well. Yeah. The tennis match. Yeah. Where, uh, is, uh, it's, uh, how did you beat me on the court? And Bruce said, you leave your right side Open. open, which he'd already said to her as Batman. Yeah, and she was Batgirl, and then he starts going, "Hmm, Batgirl doesn't put it together though." 
Which I thought kind of did her a disservice. Or... Or she just glosses over it, you think? I kind of read it as... Because Bruce makes it very obvious. I thought maybe she did work it out and just kept it quiet. Well, it does, because the, the ambiguity of the line is easy. I was watching you wherever you go to your left. You leave your right side, and she goes, my right side? Yeah. Like, she's putting it together. So you can interpret it like that, and then Bruce finishes, your right side open. And then you can see she turns around to distract him by talking to Dave. So, yeah, yeah you can interpret it that she figures it out there as well. She wore a very short skirt. I think it's hard, but tennis players do, don't they? Mm-hmm. They do wear short skirts. Uh, the first issue also details the deterioration of the raci- relationship sorry, between Dick and Bruce. And uh, it here largely comes about due to Dick essentially just wanting to step out of his mentor's shadow. This is similar to the Teen Titans, pre-crisis version. The post-crisis version has them fall out to the point of Burley speaking to each other, which I hated. And the post-zero-hour version has Dick be shot and Bruce essentially grounded. That's the origin in Robin Year One, isn't it? Right. Chuck Dixon and John Beat. I'm just there, the Superman Red and Superman Blue. Yeah. That's a brilliant advert, isn't it? Oh, I do love that advert. Is that Jan Jurgen's art? Uh, don't know. Do you know, the more, the further away we get from that, the better those costumes actually look. Yeah. I mean, it does look like Blades of Glory, I will give you that. <laughs> it does look like two ice skaters. But, I don't know what it is. The further away from that story, the less bad it becomes. I do like the blue costume. Yeah, I think the, maybe the blue's better than the red. Yeah, I think maybe adding a red one was a step too far in the wrong direction. Well, they were, they were just doing a modern update of Superman Red and Superman Blue, weren't they? Yeah. Really, so... Yeah, but the blue one is better than the red one. Great advert, though, that. Absolutely brilliant one-page advert for the the, the Superman um, ice skating saga. Uh, Dick does seem a tad off in issue one. Do you not think he lives up to his name? No, I sided, you know, I sided with the Robin. Did you? Yeah. All right, fair enough, okay. I mean, it's always been assumed that Dick's just going to become Batman one day, but here he seems desperately not to want to be like Bruce. He wants a life, a wife, and a kid. And do you know, I thought that seemed a little bit out of character at this young stage. He wants a kid at 16, 17. Uh, Only stupid people. Uh, That's just me warning you now. Okay. <laughs> Only stupid people want a child that early. I, I read it more of a... Because um, there, there are times in this where I do see, yeah, Batman's like out of place, though. Yeah. But flip side of that is Batman's getting the job done. Yes. But flip side of that is Batman's not noticing who he's affecting by getting the job done. Yeah, and also he's not noticing that Dick's growing up. Yeah. So, but on the other side of that is Dick doesn't know who he wants to be or what he wants. He's saying he wants a, a, a wife and a child, but is he saying that literally, or is that him saying he just wants a normal life? Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And he's very possessive of Barbara and sulking, but he ignored Batman's call. Yeah. Which is very self-centred, but he is a teenager and he's going through his own stuff, isn't he? Yeah. So, that being said, the final scene of book two which we didn't really have a lot of notes about, but it's a good issue. The final scene of book two is Robin throwing... Dick, sorry, throwing the Robin outfit on the floor and then picking it up and gently folding it and placing it on the table. That was quite touching. Yeah, he hates it, but he has respect for it. Yeah, he's he's basically just outgrown it. Yeah. That's what's happened. I I also liked how a lot of the dialogue in this is very similar to in the Teen Titans. Yeah, they were paying homage to the Teen Titans a lot, though, weren't they? Yeah. In this particular interpretation. 
I did like as well Bruce seems to have finally realised what's going on because Batman's in the shadows yeah and he just lets him go because he realises that's what he needs to do I like this entire last scene where Dick is annoyed at Br- uh, Bruce and hit punches him and then throws the costume but he respects Robin and Bruce respects him yeah enough to let him go yeah it works much better here than it does in Bruce Wayne murder where Nightwing and Batman get into a fight yeah because here it is just a teenager lashing out and it is one of them he punches Batman in the face and you kind of get the impression Batman lets him yeah and then he hurls his mask and his cape at him which means he crosses town dressed in his Robin costume but not his mask yeah which seems a bit uh, seems a bit dubious to me do I think it's because of that punch that Bruce realises yeah Bruce realises what's going on yeah he stops being stupid about it and lets him go off and be his own man which is is great uh, there's some Babylon 5 gets a oh Peter David wrote it as Babylon 5 comic there's a brilliant John Byrne Wonder Woman page advertising Wonder Woman's Secret Files and Origins I hadn't planned on coming the adverts in this but there are some really cool adverts aren't there yeah that uh, Superman Red Superman Blue one we just mentioned Dragon Ball Z Young Michael individual episodes being released Dragon Ball Dragon Ball Z the movie yeah unedited original material I did not know Dragon Ball Z had the same origin as Superman Similar, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, that's actually quite cute. Uh, book three is almost entirely devoted to Dick and his learning curve. It may be the best issue of the bunch. Mm. I really enjoyed this one. Dick's learning takes a different tack to Bruce, in that Dick leaves behind a trail of friends and allies, yeah, rather than just a bunch of pissed-off people, yeah. which Bruce kind of did. Having this be a two-faced story also ties into other versions of Dick's backstory where Two-Face hates Robin more than he hates Batman. Actually nicked from the villain Crazy Quilt in the pre-crisis stories because nobody takes Crazy Quilt seriously nowadays. I really like Crazy Quilt. I really Quilt. like Crazy Quilt. Wasn't he on Brave and the Bull? Yeah. Yes, he was. He was. The, um, the issue. The issue. The episode where they homage the 60s TV show. Yeah. Begins with Crazy Quilt, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't see how you can not take him seriously. He's pretty terrifying. He's a blind man who can only see by shifting colours. That yeah. creeps me out. I think I like Crazy Quill. Yeah. But I think any comics fan of long standing has a Z-list villain that they actually yeah, quite yeah. like. Mine's Crazy Quilt and Kangaroo in Spider-Man yeah. and the Grizzly. Yeah. I yeah. actually quite like those characters. <laughs> Mine was Captain Cold, but he's an A-lister. Yeah, he's A-lister now. Yeah. Captain Cold was always just a cheap knockoff of Mr. Freeze, wasn't he? Yeah. He's uh, Jeff Johns has made him A-list. He's very good in the TV show. Oh, yeah, I really do like Wentworth Miller as Captain Cold. Very, very, very good. The Invisible Tribe teach Dick all they can, but what I thought was interesting is they don't teach him everything they know. Dick being too old to begin the training. Yeah, which was a nice little touch. And uh, Dick doesn't master everything like Bruce does, Mm. which I also thought was nice. He learns enough to give him advantage over everybody else, but he doesn't know everything. And it's a nice touch that the Invisible Tribe have the Nightwing logo on their chests. Yeah. Which is where he gets it from. Again, Mm. just lots of nice little bits. And Batman Cataclysm gets a full-page advert in this one. Apparently that's coming out in trade very soon, which is nice. Oh, and Superman the Animated Series on Game Boy. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what stole the entire issue for me, though, in that? What? The last page. What was the last page? Let me have a look. Oh, Bruce and Alfred. Yeah. Just talking about Dick. It's been a year today, sir. A year? Since what? 
since Master Dick went off on his journey. Oh, is it? I hadn't noticed. Of course you hadn't, sir. Yeah. It is a good ending, that. I do like that. Of course he noticed. And of course Alfred knows that he noticed. Yeah, yeah. I love Alfred and Bruce when they're written well. <laughs> when they're written well, they are not only one of the best double acts in comics, yeah. they're also one of the most touching. When they get it, when, that, when a writer gets it right, Bruce and Alfred are absolutely fantastic. Book four is all about the Drake. Free plug. You can have that one. Uh, Tim Drake, that is, the animated series guys wisely completely ignore Jason Todd. Yeah. <laughs> Something I wish the comics could do. And immediately initiate Tim in the comics, the third Robin, into the family in the animated series as the second Robin. Oddly, this is never confusing. No, well, the the had Tim in an earlier issue. Yeah. The second one in the five. Well, that's where he gets the Batarang from. Yeah, because they redo the scene at the beginning yeah. in Bendis fashion, yeah. but from a different From a different point, point of, view. of view, and that's where he, he got the bat. The Batarang flies over the roof and lands on the roof that he's watching them from, yeah. and that's where he gets his Batarang from. The story bears some resemblance to Jason Todd's pre-crisis origin in both Tim, Jason takes the Robin outfit without permission and then grafts some of the post-crisis Jason elements from rough family, bit of a scoundrel, etc. But here, Hilary J. Barder actually remembers something very crucial that the post-crisis writer of Jason forgot right. to make him likeable. <laughs> and it works really, really well. Tim's a good kid in a bad situation and he's smart enough to know it, Yeah, isn't he? I mean, he steals to live. He steals bread and milk, but he only does it to live. You know that he wouldn't do it if he didn't have to. Yeah. But he's good at it. Yeah. And there's a certain level of enjoyment that he gets from it. And he hero-worships Batman and Robin. And I like that he... That Batarang that he found, he uses that as a... He sleeps with it. Sleeping next to a knife. Well... It's it's his comfort blanket. Yeah, it's nice. It's his slinky. It's silky. Shut up, you. <laughs> no, I think it's quite sweet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. If he turns over in the night, he could stab himself. Yeah, yeah. But there is a sweetness to it. And I do like that Bader also emphasises Bruce's soft side in having him see straight away what Tim needs. And Batgirl's line when she finds him in the cave and knows that he knows yeah. the secrets is, uh, so we're going to kill him? Yeah. Which was hysterical. Yeah. That was really, really funny. Should we kill him? <laughs> <laughs> I I really like Tim's dad, though. Shifty. Yeah. Because, you know, from the get-go, you're reading him as a bit of a dick. Yeah. And then it's the last scene where he leaves, and he says, you were a good kid, like, better than you know. Hmm. You'll do better without me. Yeah. So you're kind of like... I don't know, do you get the impression he's left him? Yes, because he's a bit of a scumbag, but also he thinks he'll do better without me. Well, you, you do get the impression that he's leaving to save his own skin, yeah. Did they not do a story later on where he came back after he discovered Tim had been adopted by the richest man in Gotham? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if that was... That's ringing a bell, and I don't remember if it's an episode of the show or an issue of the comic. It's got to be the show. You think? Because in the comic, isn't his dad... Doesn't his dad live with Bruce because he's crippled? No, you're mixing up regular comics with animated series continuity. I'm on about the animated comics. Oh, right, right, okay, yeah. I can't, and I can't remember if it was an animated comic he came back in. Right. Or an issue with the sh- or an episode of the show. Right, okay. I don't remember. Yeah, in the comics, 
Tim Drake's dad is crippled and he does live with Bruce for a bit. And then there's Identity Crisis. Yeah, where he gets killed. So, yeah. You know, what have you. Less about that, the better. Back to Dick for book five. Whilst the actual unveiling of Nightwing's a little anticlimactic. Yeah. The story for these five issues was really good. I mean, it, was, it did what the animated series does best. Taking the wealth of comics history and weaving it into a new take on old events with respect and care. Not for the first time, I found myself wishing the animated series could be the Batman continuity. And not for the first time did I find myself thinking that the animated series is probably the single best distillation of Batman ever. Mm. Bar none, even better than the comics. Barbara brushing Dick's advances off were a nice moment. Yeah. Even though he's obviously grown over the past year or so. And if Batman Beyond Return of the Joker is to be believed, although they won't have known that when they were writing yeah. this, Bruce and Barbara end up being the ones having the affair, not Dick and Barbara. Which probably upset a lot of Barbara Dick shippers. Yeah. But I actually think it works in this context. I think in the context of the animated series, it makes more sense, that, especially with this series. Well, yeah, well, there's the start of the story. They played it as though she's got the hots for yeah. Batman. Yeah, and they've spent a year working together yeah. with no Robin on the scene, and then suddenly they've got a little adopted son in Tim Drake. They're a nuclear family, as it is. Yeah. So I quite like that it's Bruce and Barbara. That, that last page of uh, Nightwing. It's a bit... It's, there's not a lot of good art, though, is there? No. Which is a shame, because the art in the rest of the series has been really solid. Uh, the only really good advert in this one's a brilliant full-page splash... Uh, full-page splash... Advert for Batman Gotham Adventures, which was the third incarnation of the animated Batman series comic after Batman Adventures and Batman and Robin Adventures. I enjoyed that. Yes. I actually think that was a really good miniseries. And... Uh, Glad we didn't cover it in depth. Yeah. A few elements I, weren't, I wasn't so hot on. Which bits? Which did you not like? Uh, still not a fan of Tim Drake. I think he's better in this than he is in, in mainstream, and I loved him in the mainstream comics. Yeah. But I actually think this this harder edge Tim Drake is actually quite good. Yeah. That's just yeah, me. I think that was it. Not a big fan of Tim. But generally, or just in the animated series? Generally. Right, okay. That's a surprise. Um, I don't know, just other bits that I thought, no, that's not so good. I like, wanted more of Batman and Batgirl. Yeah, I get the whole Two-Face and Robin uh, importance, but having Two-Face just show up. In the middle of this, con- in the middle yeah. of Santa De La Rosa, when Robin just, sorry, Dick just happens to be there. Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit, so it's coincidental. Yes. But it's, uh, you know, it's a comic book. It is. In a lot of cases, if you remove the coincidence, you don't have a story. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Of course, the longing for a normal life is not something that is in the cards for the Batman family. And Dick is seen as being groomed to become Batman at such a time that Bruce is incapacitated or dead. Prodigal was such a story and followed up the hugely successful, and for us anyway, hugely enjoyable Nightfall arc, all of which we have already covered. But this isn't the last time Dick would take on the mantle of the Bat. Unfortunately, the other great Dick as Batman story, the Black Mirror, a tad too long for us to cover here. Following Batman's death at the hands of Darkseid in Final Crisis, Dick would take over from Bruce yet again, complete with his own Robin. Number four or five at this point, I've lost count. In this case, Bruce Wayne's son with Talia al Ghul Damien. Now I know what you're thinking. And you're right. 
gone through your thinking. You've dismissed the black mirror. And you've already done Prodigal. That only leaves... Yes, dear reader, much to Michael's glee, this left a story from Batman and Robin, written by Grant Morrison, with art by Cameron Stewart. This arc, a thematic crossover with the Blackest Night story, then running through the Green Lantern books, originally appeared in issues 7 through 9 of that title from March through April 2010. Again, not a full breakdown, more a look at how Dick was handled as Batman in the more modern era. And yes, I picked this because it's set in England, and thus we can do some bad accents. Call blimey, mate. Call blimey, Gavner! At the apples and pears! In London, the Batman, with the aid of Knight and Squire, has tracked down the Cauldron of Rebirth, a Celtic legend from King Arthur's time. Batman, here in the person of Dick Grayson, believes that this is in fact a Lazarus pit, and that he can successfully resurrect Bruce with it. After stopping Batwoman from being sacrificed by the coals from Newcastle, arch enemies of Pearly Charlie, the Batman Knight and Squire and a sceptical Batwoman watch as a body emerges from the pit. As the man steps forth, Batwoman tells Batman that the Coles had planned to wipe London off the map, making Newcastle the new capital of crime, and had planned to use the cauldron to resurrect a god of evil. But Batman is convinced that this is Bruce. Sadly, the newly resurrected Batman fights to kill, and Batman realises that this isn't Bruce Wayne after all. The Coles, however, are outside and blow up the pit, trapping Batman, Knight and Squire and Batwoman inside and crippling Batwoman. In Gotham City, Damien arrives back at the manor, still in a wheelchair after his injuries, and works out that Dick plans to resurrect Bruce. However, the Batman Dick resurrected has also made his way to the manor. Batwoman takes Batman's morphine and overdoses, feeling that there's no way she'll survive long enough to be rescued or get out, but the Lazarus Pit may prove her salvation. Batman, Knight and Squire start to dig. Back at the manor, Damien deduces what Dick already knows, that this can't be Bruce, and he and Alfred tackle the fake Batman together. Alfred distracts him long enough for Damien to lure him deeper into the cave, where he spills some gasoline over him and sets him afire. It doesn't stop him. Back in England, Batman and Knight and Squire hurl Batwoman into the Lazarus Pit, and to everyone's relief, she awakens. Batman then speeds back to Gotham thanks to an experimental RSO transport, where they arrive just in time to prevent Damien from being a blot on the landscape. He and Batwoman clean up the mess in Gotham, whilst Knight and Squire do the same in London. Later, Dick admits what he did was wrong, but he had to know if that body was really Bruce, and now he's sure of one thing. Bruce is alive. All they have to do is find him. So what did you make of that? I thoroughly enjoyed this. Did you? Yeah, right, we're shooting our load though, we'll talk about that in a minute. Well, should we uh, talk about covers? If we want to talk about the covers, yeah, because I, I did all three in one go, didn't I? Go yeah. on, then you can talk about the covers. So, issue seven, yeah. standard Frank Quitley cover. Not a bad Frank Quitley cover. No, it's not. Skeletal... De- decaying Batman in costume, yeah. In costume, it's alright. Quilly's art on this was the best it's been up until recently, so it's, it's some good art. He doesn't do the art in the issues though, does he? He did the first three, right? And, then and that was too much for him, was it? He had to have a break after three well, issues, three consecutive issues, and Frank Quitley was, oh god, I'm knackered. It works with it being different. <laughs> That's your excuse yeah. if you're sticking to the, it. Um, the variant cover by Cameron Stewart is of uh, Batman 
Squire. 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 Go on there, Squire. In London. Oh, blimey. You catch a red bus. Go come down me, a taxi cab. Go blimey. Up the apples and pears, governor. Stick a pony in my pocket. I'll get a suitcase from the... I am not the gay. (laughs) Jason Statham. Uh, issue 8 the uh, quickly cover Batman and Batwoman with big Batman head facing them yeah Batman rising out of the Lazarus pit yeah. obviously they're, they're very big on teasing us through these early issues that this is in fact Batman yeah when in fact it isn't thematically it's linked to Blackest Night in, in reality absolutely nothing to do with Blackest Night actually it comes from Blackest Night it's well that's what he says in the commentary at the back isn't it he yeah. didn't really want to do a Blackest Night tie in and then the more he thought about it yeah. the more he thought actually I can make this really play into my story well it came from when Necro a Skeletor yeah. makes Bruce Wayne come out he says you're not Bruce Wayne and it just explodes because it's not the real Batman's body right so it, it came from that okay uh, the variant cover by Stewart is more or less the same. Yeah. Just different angles. And then, finally, the cover to issue 9 is Batman about to throw uh, Damien off, off the roof. Oh, no, but he's in his Robin costume, which he isn't in the issue. Yes. Artistic licence. Yes. We'll, we'll call that. And then the variant cover by Stewart is of Damien. It's rather boring, isn't it? Facing, yeah, from, yeah. It's a rather boring variant cover. Uh, the actual three-part issue. The actual three-part story opens with um, a splash page that seemingly has nothing to do with the story. Yeah. It's Bruce Wayne as Batman, sorry, Bruce, Dick Grayson as Batman carrying what he thinks is Bruce Wayne's body out of the Batcave. And then we get this absolutely wonderful James Bond-esque yeah. sequence down the Thames and all around. It's very similar to the opening to World Is Not Enough. Yeah. Isn't it? With a faffing around. And, uh... Morrison handles Dick as Batman as he handles Bruce as Batman, which is he's the coolest guy in the room. Mm. Isn't it? Well, it comes a lot from the first story arc, mm. which is about Dick finding himself as Batman, and essentially he can't do it until Alfred tells him you're not Batman. But nobody else knows that. Yeah, so basically he's just bluffing yeah. throughout the way. I actually really like this opening. There's a lovely element of cool, cool Britannia yeah. uh, to Batman bopping around in the London rain. And there is just something magnificently wonderful about seeing Batman against familiar landscapes and landmarks, and then, in a perfect moment of timing, leaps from bus to car to bus to boat on the Thames, and then lands perfectly on Squire's motorbike as she drives it out of a window above Harrods, which is not called Harrods, you'll notice. It's called Harridge. Harridges, instead of Harrods. And then they speed off down the street. If that's not just begging to go into an opening credit sequence of naked women dancing. Yeah. Then I don't know what is. It's it's acrobat Batman though, isn't it? Yeah. Bruce probably couldn't have done that. No, no, it is it is playing to Dick's strengths as an acrobat. Yeah. But it's it's, it's a brilliant opening. Oh, yeah. It really is utterly magnificent in terms of its Bond-esque, shame-faced rip-offery. Yeah. But it does it very well. But that's that's our, another Grant Morrison thing, isn't it? How he approached the character. Mm. He's Bruce Wayne. Yeah. He's Tarzan. He's all these great pulp characters in one. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you, you're probably right. Bruce probably could have done it, but how he went about it would not have been as dancey acrobatic as Dick went about it, though. Yeah. And it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I want to see that now as the opening to a Batman movie. <laughs> yeah. I want to see that as the opening to Batman whatever. 
I can't see Chris Nolan's Batman being that fun, though, can you? Yeah. I certainly don't see Ben Affleck's Batman being that fun. Batman is not enough. (laughs) The Batman is not enough. Batman I. (laughs) Batman Royale. I actually quite like these The Batman Who Loved Me. Quantum of Batman. (laughs) Oh, I do like that one. From Batman With Love. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Batman. Batfinger. (laughs) Never see Batman again. For your Batman only. <laughs> Batman Raker. That one don't quite work. I know, it? yeah. It's not quite as impressive, that one. On on her Batman's... Well, you can actually just call this one on her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. Batman's working for the <laughs> Queen. <laughs> All he needs is a Batman parachute. <laughs> and the opening spy, you love me. That would be brilliant. A Batman parachute. The only one that isn't that good oh. is Batman Finger. Yeah, Batman finger that really works. Oh, it? Golden Batman. To be honest with you. Batman balls is really Batman. Work, <laughs> That one's uh, that one's I'm just, just looking at the butcher. I'm just yeah. looking at the butcher with the man with the golden Batman. The Batman who loved me works. Yeah. I like that one. I think that one's quite impressive. I, I gotta love these names. Pearly, the king of crime dressed as a cockney cliche. Yeah. Black hat and buttons. The beef eater. Guard of the Paracriminal the Facility Basement 101. Yeah. Which I thought was a fantastic name. I, I love how Beef Eater's an actual established character. Yeah. He's, he's a D, he has the prior in the DC yeah. Universe, doesn't he? Yeah. The Beef Eater, yeah. My other favourite is Die Laughing. Yeah. Who I assume is Welsh <laughs> with the name Die. Yeah. D A I. Oh, that was absolute genius. And the dialogue here. Come on, we're reading some of this shit. <laughs> Batman! Humble as I am. What could I have done to deserve the honour of a visit from the great American crime buster himself? Call blimey. Help yourself to a kappa, why don't ya? It's <laughs> like Batman's just walked into an episode of EastEnders. Yeah, and as bad as it is, it's done so well because it's... <laughs> yeah, because it, well, it's actually a writer who gets yeah. British cadence. Yeah. Morrison probably much better than many other writers of DC Comics characters who've written English dialect. It's stereotypical, but not bad stereotypical. It's stereotypical like, like, realistic. Like Boomerang's yeah. Australian accent, yeah. Yeah. I heard my boy Eddie got himself in a sport bopper. <laughs> He's, he's Uncle Arthur from um, Only Fools and Arthurs, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, this is absolute genius. She'll have his Davinas for earrings. <laughs> Davina McCall. Balls. Yeah. Totally rabbit slag. There's, there's so much here in these p- few pages that play into the big Morrison verse as well. Yeah, well, I figured a lot of it did. I mean, there's, there's a throwaway thing, you know, the, the crane, the yeah. Metalek. Yeah. That's action comics. Is it? Yeah. I'm New 52. New 52 hadn't happened at this point. Exactly, but Morrison's plans were there. Right. I do like that he sings My Old Man Said Follow the Van. Yeah. And down dilly dally on her way. Ah, oh, genius. Absolute genius. And then back to Damien. Did you know what was up with Damien? I had not got a clue what was up with Damien. I got that something had happened to him in a previous story, and that's all I really needed yeah, to know. Yeah, yeah. Fair play to Grant Morrison, these three issues worked on their own. Well, because Damien's taken out of it. But as gross as this scene is, and it is, yeah. But uh, yeah, in the in the last story arc, in the last issue, even hmm. um, Flamingo shot him in the back. Batman Flamingo paralyzing him. Right. Not, not Batman Flamingo, but yeah, Flamingo shot him in the back and paralyzed him. Right. You do know I would actually read a Knight and Square comic by yeah. Grant Morrison. Well, he, he did. Them. Did Paul Cornell do one? Because of. 
Grant Morrison. Is Paul Cornell's Night Square any good? Have you never read I've it? I've never read it, but it does spring from uh, the Black Glove story arc. Right. I'm, I would actually be tempted to read that, because I really did like Night and Square. Yeah, well, they're in the Morrison stories an awful lot. Are they? Yeah. Right. Particularly to the end of it. I, I quite liked them. I thought they were actually uh, quite good. King Cole, the merry old soul, and the merry old soul was he, uh, is of course an old nursery rhyme, but Pearly refers to his arch enemy from the north, Cartney Wanker, uh, the Coles from Newcastle. Do you know what Coles from Newcastle is? No. Coles from Newcastle is a phrase that refers to doing something that's a bit daft. Right. Uh, I recall Nan used to say it quite a lot when yeah. I was a kid. And it basically refers to the practice of selling coal to Newcastle. Right. Which is stupid because coal came from Newcastle. Right, okay. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a... It refers to doing something a little bit stupid. Yeah. It's like selling coal to Newcastle was the right. phrase. You don't know that. No. Nan used to say that all the time when I was little. Uh, the impetus for the story... Seems to be the search for Bruce Wayne, given Blackest Night, but Alfred is pretty sure Bruce is dead mm. in this story. Dick, however, refers to being back in the pixie boots before New Year, which is an odd thing to say, given that he hasn't worn pixie boots in years. Well, it's a joke. Is it? Is yeah. Dick just, is Dick just Dick's being funny? like, uh, mellowed out here. Is he? Yo, so yeah. is he comfortable being Batman at this point? Yeah, I guess. Right. He still feels as though he doesn't belong but he's... Does he still think he's just covering for Bruce? Yes. He never actually settled into being Batman. Yeah. He always just felt, right, I'm just, I'm just guarding the cave That's until Bruce comes back. the whole point of this story arc. He doesn't right. want to be Bruce, he's come back before. Yeah. But he, this is, you know, to confirm whether he's Batman for good or whether he's going to be out of it. Yeah, and you get the impression he doesn't want to be Batman for good. Yeah, so that's why he's gone to these lengths, just to get it over And he with. wants Bruce back. Yeah, which, you know, it makes sense uh, to me, I suppose. I actually felt it was really clever that King Arthur's Cauldron of Rebirth was a Lazarus pit. Yeah. And it was one of those, why has no one thought of this before? It's such an obvious idea when it's pointed out. And yet, well, then, you know, the best ideas are, aren't they? Contradictory to Morrison's own Seven Soldiers, where it literally was a cauldron. Well, maybe Seven Soldiers kind of, maybe it got... Slightly weirded out by New 52. Okay, okay. Pandora! This well, this wasn't New 52. I know, but Pandora messed it up. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh... There's a lot of Batwoman stuff in this as well, which borrows heavily <coughs> from Greg Rucker's story that he started in uh, 52. Right. Not the J.H. Williams III stuff. Or did he draw it with Greg That was Rook? later on. Right, so that was after that. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, there's a moment in the middle of part one where Dick essentially acknowledges that he's willing to try anything to bring Bruce back which is a lovely little character beat, simultaneously heartbreaking and a little bit upsetting. Because yeah. Bruce wouldn't want him to do this, would he? No. The idea that Dick hasn't let go is quite chilling, but if this was anything but a comic book, we'd be worried about it. But let's be honest, it wasn't so much a case of when Bruce Gwen would be back. Yeah. As uh, It wasn't much a case of if, sorry, more a case of when, wasn't mm. it? We knew he was coming back. They always do. They always do. They don't stay dead. But it's whether they convince us that. Yeah. And did they? I, uh, yeah. You think? I, well. Were there moments where you thought Bruce Wayne won't be back? No. Right. But yes. Because okay. all the best stories have you thinking that. Yeah. Even though they, you know. They, they make you challenge what you know, you think you know is going to happen. Yeah. Even if your head knew it. And even if you're reading this a bit late. And know how it ends. Yeah. Well, it's ended with a new 52, didn't it? Mm. I love all the British bad guys in this. Uh, Knight and Squire, like I said, are particularly fun. Act 
actually having somebody familiar with British cadence and dialogue and accents actually helps, doesn't yeah. it? There are some great lines. I love Squire referring to Batwoman as dead art. Yeah. Which I thought was absolute genius. Killing Batwoman and then dropping her in the Lazarus pit and curing her straight away was pretty cool. Yeah. As was the way they did it. Mm. I was actually really quite impressed with that. I thought that was really cool. And having not read any of Morrison's Batrun other than this, and a couple of other issues here and there, I was quite impressed by Damien and Alfred's relationship. Oh, yeah. That's what um, I've said a few times, is everyone who hates Damien, I guarantee the majority of them never stuck around long enough, long enough to, to actually see read the, the story. Because yeah. I love Welcome Back, Master Damien. Pennyworth? Yeah. Uh, my mother's physician is an alarmist and a bore, Pennyworth. I like that he calls him Pennyworth. He does all those three, yeah. Doesn't Dick call him Alf? Yeah. And Alfred instead of Alfred. Damien so. calls him Pennyworth, but as we've already seen, he names his cat Alfred after Alfred. Aww. Mm-hmm. That's so Damien becomes quite likeable. Yeah. Do you not like that he's back? Uh, no. Because then you yeah. just, essentially, you've kind of pissed all over seven years worth of storytelling. I did, well, did this happen in the New 52? Did what happen? Damien this, Damien... Yeah. Dying and stuff. Yeah, right. Damien died in the New 52. Oh, right, okay. Well, I always thought that he was Morrison's Batman story who just kind of existed in its own thing. Well, he did say he didn't want to step on Snyder's toes. Right. But yeah, everything still did happen. All right, fair enough. Uh, There's a cool bit as well, the fight scene between Dick and uh, Bruce, or not Bruce. Not Bruce. Yeah. Which is just a page of them parrying and fighting. Which is really cool, because Karen Stewart's an artist who prides himself on having flowing fight scenes. You can follow the fight moves from panel to panel. It's mm. not just a series of poses. They all flow into each of them. Yeah. And that's really cool seeing two people who are as good as each other because they learn from each other. And it's a 12-panel pad. Yeah. Which is really good as well. Similar. It's very similar to the Perez one at the big top of the show. Yeah. But not. Mm. Well, you know what I mean. This one's all out of place. As yeah, this one isn't straight panels. Camera shaking. Yeah. Shaky cam. Yeah. Which sometimes gets on my nerves a lot, but it's a comic book, so I can actually look at each panel whenever I want. I have to say, Batman, sorry, Dick, swooping in at the last moment and rescuing Damien was really cool. Because mm. the way they play that, it is like Damien's going to get killed, isn't it? Yeah. And then he swoops in and, morning! With me, it's all in the timing. Yeah. And Dick's, Damien's like, oh. And the smile on Dick's face as well, because he knows what he always always wanted to be confirmed. Yeah. That uh, Bruce is alive. Uh, it's just, the the Batman clone is great in it as well. Like, his his out-of-place memories. The Bat-Zombie. That are a bit out of whack, and the fight scenes, and the decaying, and him knowing everything, but he's wrong. So, I, I really like the interaction with him and Alfred, and the, him and Dick, and him and, him and Damien. Damien's actually really funny. Yeah. Who are all these terrible people and what on earth is going on? <laughs> he sounds like Higgins, doesn't he? <laughs> oh my god! He's a ten-year-old He's Higgins. He's a ten-year-old Higgins. I actually really liked Damien in this story. Uh, it's it's really decent and treads on this being Dick rather than Bruce. He does yeah. a, Morrison does a really good job differentiating between the two of them with Dick arguably being a more grounded Batman 
while still doing all the cool stuff that one wants from Batman, mm. tying into Blackest Night without actually tying into Blackest Night is quite inspired. Yeah. I probably pissed off a few people who already bought this because it was a Blackest Night tie-in. But as it meant we had a story here we could cover without feeling lost, I'm kind of inclined to be uh, be generous to it. Yeah. I, I loved it, and I love uh, th- th- that old King Cole. Oh, you yeah. never mind. No, what is he? He's Geordie, isn't he? Just give and tell my missus about lasses. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Ant-Man. Deckman. Just give and tell my missus about lasses. That's all I'm saying. I can't do Geordie. <laughs> Can you do Geordie? No. No, so that's an accent that fails me. How did your trackers do in life? <laughs> Through 400 feet of solid rock pet. You have to put pet at the end of every <laughs> sentence. Pet. Otherwise it's not Geordie pet. Don't tell the missus about the lasses, pet. That was a little bit better. Yeah, you, oh, get, right. it, you get it, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting it, but I'm still some considerable miles <laughs> yes. away, is what you're trying to You're in to the say. direction of Jordy, you're just... <laughs> I'm going Scotland. in the right direction, but I'm, I'm coming from very, very far <laughs> yeah. away. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how good that was. We read that in Michael's Absolute. Mm. So that was the big thud. I don't suppose I need to ask you what you thought of it. Yeah. Fun. It's actually a Morrison story that made perfect sense. It's, he got very fun near the end of his run. It's actually, do you know what? It's really simplistic for a yeah. Morrison story. Bruce thinks that, sorry, but Dick thinks that Bruce isn't dead. He takes his dead body to what he thinks is the last surviving Lazarus pit to test his theory. That's well, the story. Arguably, Morrison's Batman run is better after Final Crisis because that's when it starts becoming fun and not convoluted. Right. And do you know why that was? Why? Brave and the Bold. This Ma- the cartoon. Morrison said that Brave and the Bold inspired this last bulk of stories. What, as he watched that cartoon and went, oh, this is f***ing great. A direct quote, Batman Incorporated is Brave and the Bold and Modern Warfare. <laughs> Where's the Modern Warfare bit come from? I have no idea, maybe uh, it's just a fan of Call of Duty. Okay. So, a selection of stories about Robin, comics' pre-eminent sidekick. Whilst we've touched upon most of those to wear the colourful costume, this was a look, mostly, at the life and times of Dick Grayson, the first in a long line of kid versions of adult heroes, but also the first to fly the nest and become his own man. Across the years, numerous writers and artists have breathed life into the sensational character find of 1940, and he has become, for many, a favourite. A notorious ladies' man, but smart as a whip, Grayson may be one of the best-developed characters in comics, which is why it always saddens me to hear the publisher of DC Comics wants him dead. In the right hands, he's as compelling a character as any has ever appeared in DC Comics, be it the laughing daredevil, the boy wonder, the disco-collared leader of the Teen Titans, or the cool, ponytailed epitome of 90s lad, Dick Grayson has got it going on. And you know what? Two episodes dedicated to Dick Grayson, and we didn't make a single holy gag. Holy now lack that of holy gag. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say now that's restraint <laughs> on our part. That about wraps it up for our celebration of everybody loves a bit of Dick Grayson. Yes, spotted Dick Grayson, <laughs> the teenager. And we almost went through that one without making a Dick gag. We, we were did, actually we quite did. restrained this yeah. week. Oh, I thought next time on an all new episode, nothing. Michael's away in Venice for a week. That won't affect you, lovely listener, because for such an occasion, we have two weeks' worth of episodes, don't we? We have prepared for it. 
But next time, when we sit down and record, we're just going to do just good comics for a couple of weeks. Stuff that we've had in the book for, God, years, in some yeah. cases, that have just slipped through the cracks and we never actually got to cover. You'll be surprised to learn most of mine come from the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know where yours is. I've changed today's. I was reading it and I just wasn't feeling it, so that's not been done. Fair it. Uh, I don't know what Michael's going to bring to the table, but uh, he's in Venice for a week, so he's probably got a week to think about it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Say that every week, don't I? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do in a week when I don't enjoy it? I hope you enjoyed that more than we did. Yeah. Do you know I've never not enjoyed it? Ever? It's because we're fun. It is. Yeah. I agree with that. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Are you bored of boring t- <laughs> bread spreads? Are you bored of regular podcasts? Do you want to listen to people spread Nutella and eat it on their bread mm-hmm. and crackers? Well, join us every Friday for the Nutella Podcast. Every week we'll be trying different flavors, different textures, different smoothing outs of all the different variations of Nutella that are available to you in your local haberdashery that sells hats. I don't know why I said haberdashery. I meant supermarket. We can fix it in post. So come join us every week for the Nutella Podcast! And next, we spread on a wholemeal. <laughs> Nutella does not taste good on wholemeal. Nutella this, doesn't taste good. Does it? Yeah. I can eat Nutella with I a spoon. I have eaten Nutella with a spoon. Absolutely awful stuff. Cool. Are we ready? I could go with some Nutella right now. We'll so. go and get some Nutella right now. I don't know if we have uh, Nutella, but you can, if you wish to go and see if we have any Nutella while we have a break, feel free. Mum has Nutella. Does she? It's still sealed. She- <laughs> so she knows if you touched it. She's very sneaky like that, isn't she, your mother? <laughs> Ready? Yeah. If any title can be said to give Dick Grayson his own identity and redefine him as his own man, it would be the new te- the nude Teen Titans. <laughs> that is a completely different book. Yeah, I knew it's Starfire. People will probably well, buy it. Well, I think it kind of happened in between panels. Oh, God. Yeah. Blimey. Take me to the lock-up, Arthur. I could be so good. Anya has decided, Angela has decided that singing was too much. Yeah, yeah. I could be so good for you. I want to tell you. Love me. <laughs> Okay. Angela's made me stop. <laughs>